By the way, this is not a king with idle threats. The prophet Jeremiah records that he roasted his officers when he didn't like what they did. He plucked out people's eyes. He's not a nice guy. He's again the Hitler of the day. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're continuing our study of the book of Daniel, a book that clearly illustrates God at work in His chosen people. One example of how God confounds the ungodly and raises His own is found in chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar has had a recurring dream. The king calls for his Chaldean ministers, who supposedly are able to prophesy, do magic, and are in touch with the so-called gods. Yet they are unable to interpret the king's dream. And so the king calls on Daniel, and God in his faithfulness reveals the meaning of the dream to Daniel. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2 now as Pastor Brogy looks at visions and dreams recorded in the Bible in his message entitled, A King's Nightmare. Sometimes God gave a vision and a dream, not just to a man of God, but sometimes to an outright pagan. Abraham had an encounter with a king by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech had a dream, and in that dream, God revealed to him that Sarah was not his sister, but his wife. In this case, God gives a dream to this man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, but God doesn't give him the interpretation and the meaning of the dream. Now, I know if I don't answer this, when I go out the door, I'll have a dozen questions, or you'll write me this week, so let me address it. Because I know some of you are thinking as I speak, does God give visions and dreams today? Well, it might be, I think, healthy to say that as a general rule, if you think God gave you a dream, that He gave you some inspiration, more than likely it was not an inspiration but indigestion. But with that said, I do believe that in the general possibility, God can give a vision or a dream. Now, people abuse this in our day, and one of the verses they love to run with is Acts chapter 2 where Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he quotes the prophet Joel. And there we read, And it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now Peter links this to the last days. And so there are all these guys going around today saying, we're in the last days, And God said He'd give dreams and visions, and I want to tell you what He gave me. Well, number one, when did the last days begin? Well, in Peter's mind, it began on the day of Pentecost. These people had just done something miraculous. They spoke in a language, a real verifiable tongue, and a dialect within that tongue that they had never known before. And it was so astounding, the skeptics, like the skeptics in our day, want to write off the miraculous, and they say, well, they must be drunk. And Peter says, what you've just witnessed is exactly what God said would happen in the last days. And he quotes the text I just read from the prophet Joel. Biblically speaking, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. It goes all the way through the second coming of Christ. There's another term that's used in Scripture called the latter days. Daniel's going to use that term even this morning. The New Testament also uses it. And that refers, in essence, to the last of the last days. 
But know this, that we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. And two, if you read the whole quotation that Peter gave, he goes on to speak of the fact that the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn blood red during the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so he takes the last days all the way from the day of Pentecost through the time just before Jesus comes and there's great miracles that happen in the sky. And by the way, some have asked me about the four blood moons. It's a lot of nonsense. It will sell books. It will fill auditoriums. But it is sheer nonsense. If uh, this four blood moon phenomena was something that was taught in Scripture. Don't you think in the course of 2,000 years that God's men and women would have seen it before? Look, as a general rule, if it's new, it's not true. The moon turning blood red that God speaks of is beyond what we see when you have a certain kind of eclipse. He's talking about literally even the stars falling from the heavens. And he's talking about a day, the great and terrible day of the Lord that precedes the second coming. has nothing to do with the blood moons that we're seeing in our day and that they've seen throughout history. And they love to manipulate the four blood moons to say, well, look what happened when this happened. They're manipulating it. I've gone back and I've studied their chronology and it's really pretty poor. But people don't think for themselves today, which is kind of sad. But can God still speak in a dream and a vision? Sure he can. Maybe you're asking, has he ever spoken to you? No, he has not. Could he? He could speak to anyone. God can do whatever he wants to do. But let me just say, there are certainly places in the world where there is little preaching of the Bible and little specific revelation. There's general revelation wherever you go, found in creation and conscience. But in some places of the world, they've never seen a Bible. They've never heard the name of Jesus. And God sometimes can give a vision or a dream in order to bring the person under the call of the gospel. Uh, but let me say, when God does give a vision or a dream, it is, number one, never going to contradict what He has revealed in His Word. God's will never contradicts God's Word. And if you have a vision or a dream that is extracurricular, that goes beyond the revelation of Scripture, or subtracts from the Word of God, then you've come under the warning that the book of Revelation closes with. And you don't want to do that. I would also say that God never, ever, ever commands us to seek a dream or a vision. But He does command us to seek, to study the Word of God. And He does tell us on occasion we should seek the counsel of other wise people to discern His will for our life. Uh, I have a friend who worked with the Jesus Film Ministry, and he worked in India, and he met some people, and they said, well, how'd you hear about our showing of the Jesus Film? And they said, well, three days ago, God gave us a vision to come to this village, and we've walked for three days. And they walked for three days, and they heard the gospel. Notice they didn't get the gospel in the dream. God uses human agents to communicate the gospel. That's why we're called to go into every nation of the world and to preach the gospel. God gave Cornelius a, 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 an, an encounter with an angel, and he gave Peter a dream, and he brought the two together so that he could hear the gospel, but God still used the human agent. Another missionary speaks, true story. His car breaks down, and a man walks up to him, and he asks him the question. He said, are you God's messenger? He said, well, what do you mean? 
He said, God gave me a dream last night that I would meet a man in this place with a broken down car, and I want to know if you're God's messenger. He said, well, I guess I am. He said, well, would you come to my village and tell us and speak to us about your message? And he went to their village and he gave them the gospel and they say the entire village was converted to Jesus Christ. God can do whatever he wants to do. But what he does is not like the nonsense we've seen here in the last month, this so-called evangelist who uh, has had this vision from God where he said between September 23rd and 28th, a comet is going to, an asteroid is going to crash into Puerto Rico. It's going to create tsunamis that are going to cover the entire eastern seaboard deep in water. The 28th, that's tomorrow, right, Anthony? This could be my last sermon, brother. <laughs> that's nonsense. That's folly. And so there's a lot of abuse. And so Ezekiel warns us of false dreams and lying divinations. A lot of these people, again, they're either trying to make money or they just like to think they are so spiritual. Let me tell you about my experience. And somehow on their low self-esteem, because they don't have a biblical self-image that comes from the Word of God, they have to build up their self-image by making themselves to be some kind of a big shot. Ezekiel warned of false dreams and lying divinations. The Apostle John commands us in the New Testament not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits to see where they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone into the world. So keep your attention where God calls you to keep it on the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, Jesus Himself gave a similar warning. Remember that man, the rich man who dies and he goes to hell? And he says, oh, please, I've got five brothers Go and warn them lest they also come to this horrible place of torment. Please uh, have someone rise from the dead and then they will believe. And Jesus said, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, if they will not believe the Word of God, neither would they believe if someone was raised from the dead. And a short time later, he did literally, about 10 days before he died on Golgotha, he raised a man by the name of Lazarus from the dead. Many believed, but many hardened their hearts and sought to disprove what they could not deny. And so there's the king's disturbance. Secondly, think about the king's demand. We read here in verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king of his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Now, this is not some casual request. He's really upset, and he's got good reason. So he calls in these four categories of experts. First, the magicians. They're the diviners. They use charts and magic to try to answer people's questions about the future. The second Hebrew word is translated here, conjurers or astrologers in the King James. These are guys who uttered spells and they would conjure up revelations to tell the future. Then there's the sorcerers. They use necromancy. That is, they try to communicate with the dead to try to figure out the future. And then there's this special elite class called the Chaldeans. They are the wise of the wise men. By the way, don't confuse them with the general use of the term Chaldean. 
The term Chaldean is used in a broad sense to describe all those people who live in this realm called Babylonia or Chaldea. So it's not being used like a South Carolinians. It's being used in a technical sense in this chapter, which is obvious from the context. A special class, the wise of the wise men. And we're told specifically here in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar calls in these four groups to tell the king his dreams. He did not tell his dream, but he expected them to recount the dream and then to interpret the dream using their magical powers. Now that's the king's distress. Secondly, we want to think about the scholars in their dilemma. The scholars in their dilemma. We read here in verse 4, it opens, then the Chaldeans, these wise men, spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, if you have the NASB in front of you, you'll see a little note there next to the word, the little number one, you see it there next to the word Aramaic. And if you go out into the margin, it gives you a little marginal note. Do you see the marginal note out there? It says from here in verse four, all the way through chapter seven and verse 28, that's the end of chapter seven, the text goes from Hebrew into Aramaic. Now understand, God inspired the Bible in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Almost the entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Almost the entire New Testament is written in Greek, with the exception of a couple verses like Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Most of you know that, that's Aramaic. But the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but these chapters, beginning in two all the way through the end of seven, and in like vein, in Ezra 4 through 7, and one word in Jeremiah, one verse in Jeremiah is written in Aramaic, and for a reason. For instance, in Ezra 4 through 7, it's in Aramaic. Why? Because he's dealing with trade, international information. And the trade language of the day was Aramaic. Like 100 years ago, the international language in the world was French. What's the international language today? English, thank God for us in our day. But in that day, it was Aramaic. And of course, that's the language the Lord Jesus spoke. And that's the language a lot of the Jews spoke. Why? Because they're transported to Babylon. They're there for 70 years and they learn Aramaic. Now, Jesus also knew Hebrew, though the Bible doesn't tell us. I suspect he also knew Greek, the lingua franca of that, of the empire. Paul knew all three languages, so I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord Jesus did as well. But in this chapter, all the way through chapter 7, there's a different reason. Notice so here on this chart, here's the breakdown of the book. Again, the first chapter, all the way through chapter 2 at verse 4, that deals with Daniel's personal history. It's in Hebrew. From the middle of verse 4 all the way through the end of chapter 7, it is in Aramaic. And again, it's a sister language to Hebrew. They're very similar, just like Ukrainian and Russian are very similar. They're different languages. But at the Tower of Babel, where the languages developed and all the races came because people married within their language group, we have a reason for the races in the world. The pagan world does not. People like Hitler said, well, you know, black people and Jewish people and other people, they were, you know, genetic mutations. God gave a reason for the races. And really, the technical term is not races, but nations. Because there's one race of people, we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, but there are different nations where people married within their language group, and within that language group, certain uh, physical features, when given enough time, would begin to develop. And so um, 
Aramaic is a sister language of Hebrew. And this is important in this section. Why? Because typically in the Bible, God either tells history or he tells the future through the lens of the nation Israel. But here in the prophet Daniel, he is going to tell the future through the Gentile nations of the world. God is going to show us how all these various Gentile nations, all the way to the time of this coming ruler called Antichrist, are going to have a part in unfolding the future for God. All right, so do you follow that? It's not that complicated. Now, I didn't learn Aramaic. In, in seminary, they taught us Hebrew and they taught us Greek. And 99.999% of the Bible is in those languages, so I didn't learn Aramaic. But... Um, Nonetheless, the comments that I will make, I think, will be accurate concerning the language. Now, let me keep going here before we get too lost. Let's start with this scholar's ignorance, point A there on your outline, the scholar's ignorance. In Aramaic, the Chaldeans say, O king, live forever. That's what you tell a tyrant if you want to be on good terms. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. These guys are trying to get around the king's challenge. Why? Because they know they can't meet him. But Nebuchadnezzar is not about to back down. Look at verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb. Oh, that's pleasant. And your houses will be made a rubbish heap. That's known as explaining it more clearly. All right? And by the way, this is not a king with idle threats. The prophet Jeremiah records that he roasted his officers when he didn't like what they did. He plucked out people's eyes. He's not a nice guy. He's, again, the Hitler of the day. Verse 6, if you declare the dream and its interpretation, however, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Now, he's not stupid. He's smart enough to know that these guys can say, well, tell us the dream, and then they'll tell the interpretation. They'll get together, make sure everyone's on the same page. They all have the same interpretation. He's no fool. He's no idiot. So he wants both. Now, it doesn't seem that the crime would fit the punishment. This would be like the president of the United States saying, I'm going to kill every member of Congress, and then I'm going to take bulldozers and run over your houses. So why does he deal with these people so harshly? Well, some scholars would say, well, just simply because uh, he doesn't like some of the leaders in the kingdom that he inherited, and so he wants to get rid of them, and now he has an excuse. Now, from what we just read in 519, and as we will see in the book, if Nebuchadnezzar wants to get rid of someone, he can get rid of anyone. All he has to do is speak the word. The law of the Medes and the Persians had not yet been developed. He can do whatever he wants. He is a total despot. He is a wicked, vicious dictator. I think there's another reason. Remember, he's come into the kingdom. He's inherited his daddy's advisors. And he wants to see what they're made of. He wants to see if these guys really are frauds and con men or if they can do what they claim to do. And so they come unglued. Look at verse 7. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm. He's saying, you're stalling, you're trying to buy time. Look at verse 9. He's very clear. He says that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. 
For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. He's using one to qualify the other. And you couple that with the fact that it's so troubling for him at night. It wakes him up. He's going to deal with these guys very harshly. But these experts, they're at a total loss. And I suppose they are no different from the experts in our day. The intellects of our day say they have the answers to life. They can tell you how to feed and please all of your lusts and passions, but they cannot tell you how to deal with the resulting problem of guilt. They can uh, solve the most intense mathematical equations and synthesize all the chemical compounds in this world. But these people cannot tell you how to fix a broken heart. They can tell you how to raise your children. But they cannot build young men and women into people of character. They have information. But they do not have revelation. And Daniel is distinct. His three friends are distinct because they have the revelation of God in Scripture. And so do we. We have before us the Holy Scripture. So there's their ignorance. Secondly, look at their arrogance, the scholars' arrogance. We read here now in verses 10 and 11. Let me read it, then we'll go back and pick it apart a little bit. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. They're right about that. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. I mean, you talk about sheer arrogance. They basically saying, king, if we don't know the answer, then nobody knows the answer. They think that wisdom begins and ends with them. But there was a man in the kingdom by the name of Daniel. And it didn't originate with him. We will see it originated with God. But they don't like Daniel. They hate Daniel. They hate his religion, as we're going to see, because they hate Jewish people. And throughout the history of the Jewish people, they are the most despised people on the face of the earth. There is no people in the history of humanity that have had more attacks and more hatred against them than the Jewish people. And it's going to get worse because we will see not just in the prophet Daniel, but in the revelation given to John, that all the nations of the world are going to come against Israel. And so these arrogant men dogmatically say, there's not a man on earth who can declare such a thing. They're saying, listen, king, if a magician and an astrologer and a Chaldean can't answer it, then nobody can answer it. And the intellects of our day, they, they think they have the answers to questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? Well, you know, you're, you're a piece of cosmic dust out of the universe. Where did I come from? You know, out of the glue, into the zoo, that became you. That's what they tell us. They say we originated from monkeys. That's what they teach our kids, and we wonder why they want to live like animals. Where am I heading back? Well, in the end, you know, you're going to end back into that big energy source we call the universe. Sheer ignorance, just like these men are ignorant. 
But when a person is born again, God the Holy Spirit comes to inhabit them. And Paul says to the Corinthians, they have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means they have a new capacity to think their thoughts after God's thought. Doesn't mean they'll always think right. And so we're called to renew our minds, to grow in our knowledge of the Holy Scripture. But we now have a new ability that we didn't have before we met the living God. And so God tells us, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver as you search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes understanding and knowledge. I took a course as a freshman at Boston College. It was called the History of Western Civilization. We studied every major philosopher from Aristotle to the present. Two semesters of that gibberish. And it was taught by a Jesuit priest. You know, every Jesuit, of which the Pope is one, has a minimum of 17 years of formal schooling after high school before they come into this position and title called a Jesuit. This guy had more than that. In fact, he had three earned doctorates. He had a doctor of jurisprudence. He's a lawyer. He had a doctor of philosophy, and he also had a doctor of dental surgery, three doctorates of sorts. And he was considered one of the brightest men on the East Coast. But as I listened to him as a new believer, I realized that the janitor that I became friends with in that building, who was a born-again Christian, had more insight to life than this man with three doctorates. And if you're born again and you are learning the Word of God and your mind is being renewed, then you'll have God's answers. Jesus said in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you've revealed them to infants, to babes. Some things only come by divine illumination and that illumination is found in this book. But these professionals say, nobody can ask what you ask, King. Only the gods could tell them that. It's an amazing admission here in verse 11. The thing that the king demands is difficult. But these are guys who say they interface with the gods, but they admit their own failure. And that's what makes Daniel so distinct. And that's what can make you so distinct. Now, I'm not saying that what Oprah and the Mormon cult and others are saying that you need to get in touch with the God within you. It is true, the Bible says you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. You become partakers of the divine nature. But you don't become some little God as in Mormonism. You don't get in touch with the God within you as Oprah says. You get in touch with the God of heaven as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit who lives in you will help you. He's called our helper to illumine the truth. You don't get revelation. Revelation is found in Scripture. But God will give you illumination. He will help you to understand the revelation that he has given. But here in verse 11, these wise men admit their fakes. Verse 12, the king, of course, is furious. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And as soon as the decree is signed, off goes Arioch, the head of this detail, to go after the wise men. 
The scholars, wise men, and satraps, including Daniel and his friends, were all marked for execution. But next time we'll see how God used Daniel to not only interpret the dream, but to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream consisted of. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN2, entitled A King's Nightmare. Tomorrow we'll continue our look at A King's Nightmare as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Join us then as we search the scriptures. We'll be right back. 